Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Sunday School, the Bible study podcast brought to you by Pillar Media. I'm your host and scripture student, I suppose you would say, J.D. Flynn, joined by my co-host and our executive producer, Kate Oliveira, and our Sunday School teacher, Dr. Scott Powell. Bing, 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 bing. What Gosh, is that, that was like are those fireworks. <laughs> I feel like a, I feel what like a, I feel like the morning uh, radio show on Community, <laughs> yes. where they have names that are not appropriate for us to say on this podcast, or or like buckle up your booties because it's cold out there. Or whatever. <laughs> they say our love. Well, anyway, Scott, I always wanted to be on a drive time radio show. Yeah, this is basically the Groundhog Day of that. I think you misused that. <laughs> oh, that's fine. That's yeah. fine. Anyway, hey everybody, uh, welcome to another episode of Sunday School. Uh, as I, I already are we redoing this? No, no, okay. no. I just, I kind of got sidetracked. Indeed. I'm so, I'm so excited to be here, and I just can't hide it. Um, it's a, it's a real Jesse Spano and the coffee pills moment for me. Um, but before I come crashing down, Scott. Uh, we're going to read this week. Did you not get that reference? <laughs> no, I missed it. No. No, That's the bell. a generation oh, okay. Saved by the Bell. Saved by the Bell is a television program, an American television program about <laughs> five friends Lisa, Zach, Kelly. It's debatable Slater, whether they're friends. Jesse, oh, and Screech, six from, friends. From day to day. Well, in which way were they not friends? Well, they didn't like Screech. Screech was always just kind of there, and they made. This is really not the point of this podcast. Screech and Zach regarded themselves as best friends. Maybe it's just been a long time since I've seen it. They didn't treat Screech well. But I feel like we're heading down a okay. road that we, that's unnecessary. <laughs> At any rate, we should. It was a television program. <laughs> <laughs> um, but we're not here to talk about Saved by the Bell. No. Scott, what chapters of uh, the letter to the Romans are we going to talk about this day? So really, we're going to be talking about chapters five through eight, but we, we, I want to, we kind didn't left quite, off and, yeah, yeah, we yeah. didn't quite get through four last week. So I want to use four as kind of a jumping off point, but then I want to focus in on five through eight, which is, I think the center, the centerpiece of the letter. All right, great. Uh, here is the Pillars Ed Condon with Romans chapters four through eight. And as always, if you'd like to skip the readings, you can jump ahead to the 1915 mark in this episode. That is 1915. Here's Ed. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from his works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised, so that righteousness would be counted on them as well, and to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised, but who walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be the heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, 
faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherents of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all, as it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. In the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. I hope he believed against hope, that he should become the father of many nations, as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God fully convinced that God was able to do what he promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into his grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us, for while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin was not counted where there was no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Christ Jesus. Therefore, as one trespass led to the condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, 
so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like this, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like this. We know that old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin, once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments of righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under the law, but under grace. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you, who were once slaves of sin, have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification, and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from the law, and if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit of death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, 
so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit, and not in the old way of the written code. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin, for I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, You shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive, and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me, for sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it killed me. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, and righteous, and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin, producing death in me, through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God, in my inner being. But I see in my members another law, waging war against the law of my mind, and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by flesh, could not do. By sending his own Son, in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him, but if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through the Spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put death to the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. 
For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him, in order that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we will wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own Son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So I just want to start us out with um, just calling us back, a little bit of recap, calling our attention to the primary issue at stake in the Church of Rome when Paul writes this letter, which is the unity of Jewish and Gentile Christians, right? So we started a couple of weeks ago um, at the end. We started at the end, which Julie Andrews might take umbrage at that, but we started at the very end um, where Paul saw showed us um, in the practical application of the letter how some of these issues were taking, were playing themselves out, right? So we saw some kosher food issues. We saw Sabbath issues. We saw this sort of mutual pride and condescension 
of one group of believers to another, right? So you had the Jewish Christians, the Jewish believers in Jesus, who presumably were the ones who founded the church. They were the leadership of the church. They were all booted from the city by Emperor Claudius, by Caesar Claudius in what, 49 AD. And in the meantime, the Gentiles, the sort of outsiders that had been brought in. And I think by this point in history, this is a, a fairly large number of folks. They, I still think, may have been seen in some way or another as sort of second class, but it wasn't that their numbers were particularly small. I think there was there was plenty of Gentile converts in Rome. But in the intervening years, they kind of take things over, right? They take charge of the church. They're the leaders. They're the priests. They're the bishops, presumably, the house church leaders. And then about five or six years later, the Jewish Christians are allowed to come back. They come back to the city, and I presume that they come back thinking like, okay, we're happy to take over now. Like, we'll, we'll take the reins. Thanks for holding down the fort. We'll, we're in charge again. And the Gentile Christians thus saying like, hold up. We're happy you're back, but things are different now. You're going to have to get used to it, so, so take a back seat. And so it's a question about mutual pride and condescension, each group thinking about the other group on an ethnic level, right? You guys you know, maybe the Jews thinking about the Gentiles, we're lucky we let, you're lucky we let you in. You guys came late to the party. Like, who do you think you are Mm -hmm. running the show? And the Gentiles maybe in the same way thinking like, so many of you guys didn't even accept the Messiah, right? Look at what happened historically and how come there's so few of you and so many of you didn't jump on board. I think one of the things, we'll probably talk about a little bit more next week. I think there's a similar sort of unspoken pride that exists in the church today and in Christianity today because simply because of the fact that at least where we live in the world, this is not an issue we have to think about very much. But I think it should trouble us. And Paul's going to be very troubled. And he's going to try to trouble us with the question of, hey, wait a second. How come more Jewish people didn't follow Jesus? How come so many of the chosen people rejected him? What what actually did happen? Because the, the temptation is to think of ourselves, and again, this kind of pride, like, well, obviously I can read the Bible better than those who came before me. And obviously I'm a better student of the Old Testament than these folks because they just missed the boat. Rather than the, the deep humility that Paul's really going to try to drill into both groups that none of you have any right to be here, really. It's because of the pure gift of Jesus Christ given to you, all those sinners, that you've been invited into this communion, into this family. And so, I don't know, I just think this is important because Paul's going to try to level the playing field, even for the likes of us in 2023, when we get to chapter like 11. He's going to say, you need to worry about this more. Paul himself says, I weep over this. And I don't know if we're a church who weeps over those who are not in the family anymore. Um, so again, the, the, one of the big things is unity. Paul wants them to live together, but it's not about, it's not a letter about unity in merely the sense of let's just get along with each other. There's a bunch of strife. There's a bunch of ethnic infighting. Let's just get along with each other. The unity is at the service of a God who has integrity, who is righteous and who does what he says he will do. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. So that, that's at the heart of the matter, right? Um, we're going to see a term, um, either works of the law or sometimes just works. Whenever Paul talks about, I can't remember if we talked about this or not. We so talked maybe about this last. Oh, we did. Okay. So just a quick refresher. Works of the law is not good deeds because it's often juxtaposed with faith. Faith versus works. Faith versus works of the law. Paul well, Works of the law means baptism. Works of the law means Deuteronomy. Oh, oh, yeah. Keeping the So law. the works of the right. law are the mosaic law, mm-hmm. the works of that law. And the capstone work of the law that allows you entrance into the family is what? 
Circumcision? Circumcision. Right? Oh, yeah. And that's important because Paul's going to keep going back to that idea. That was the marker in the Old Testament that showed membership, that allowed membership, right? So what about so, for a lady? Her her incorporation into the body is by virtue of being effectively appended to a circumcised man? Yes, a father or a husband. Oh, I see. And, and uh, you know, the reality of this is there's so many things about the Mosaic law that, again, it is God's law. Let me mm-hmm. be very clear. God chose this. This is what God did. This is not man-made stuff. Right. However, I do think built into it, it suggests that surely that's not the end. Surely that's not what God wants for all people. Even the fact that, you know, even for females, it's just by association there's something more that God's leading us to, perhaps, right? And baptism then becomes the fulfillment of that. It's everything. Oh, so baptism is so. It, so in a certain way, when Paul—I don't want to get ahead of you—but when Paul says, like, in Christ, there's no woman or man, it's because their baseline incorporation to the community is not either direct or associative, but in both cases, direct, direct through the sacrament. Yeah. Which I think for women is sort of revolutionary. It was revolutionary. And again, I can't think of a, a religion on earth that actually had that. Re- well, that's not that's not entirely true. But it wasn't known in the ancient Near East. It wasn't known in the Mediterranean world. And again, the way that, that the church treats women in particular is going to be a huge source of ire for the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire hates the way the church treats a whole lot of people. So, yes, there's, there's a lot more to be said. But that's important because two of these other terms I just want to mention are works of the law. But Paul always uh, juxtaposes works or works of the law, which means Deuteronomy. It means those laws in the Old Testament. He juxtaposes it with faith which is not just rotely believing. It's not doing good things or believing. That's not what faith faith versus works is. It's are we saved? In other words, are we brought into the covenant family of God through the laws of Deuteronomy or through faith? And almost every time Paul mentions faith, you can find baptism pretty closely behind. He always associates faith with baptism because it is the fulfillment of what circumcision always pointed toward. Does Paul perceive that baptism imparts faith like we do like we think that baptism imparts for us the theological c- character of faith does paul have that sense that baptism I- imbues us with something called faith um uh, his language almost sounds like the inverse of okay. that that faith is working through baptism mm-hmm. I, I i mean even the the theology of the church correct me if i'm wrong is it, it chicken or the egg kind of a thing like you see in the in Acts of the Apostles, remember that when Peter goes up to Caesarea at the calling of Cornelius, mm-hmm. they all receive the Holy Spirit, and then they hurry up and baptize them. Right. And the baptism is a response to them receiving yeah, the Holy Spirit. Yeah, I think so, baptism is both a response to faith and... Yes, yes, exactly. So I don't know if Paul would parse that out. Okay. I don't, I don't know if Paul would parse it okay. out. Maybe we can try to deduce there, but whenever Paul talks about faith, I think he's thinking baptism's not far behind. So when he says faith versus words, yes. or when we talk about that, yes, he's yes. saying baptism versus... Circumcision. circumcision. Absolutely right. That's the simplest way to put that. Yeah. yeah. And, okay. and all of its correlations. What is faith without works is dead in that context? That's not that context. Oh, okay. that's oh. in the book of James. And it's, oh. but that's important because it's a totally different concept Cons- or context. Yeah. Because he's not writing to Ju- a Jewish community and in- he's not dealing with this issue. Oh, okay. And he's not talking about works of the law. He doesn't say that. Works of the law is a technical oh, okay. term oh, got he, it. for that law. When he says law. works in Roman, it's works, works of, of the law. law. Yeah. Oh, okay. Got it. Okay, okay. And you'll see Paul will kind of go back and forth, but he always sort of uses them in the same way. Okay. You got to be a little careful in the way that we read. I, off the top of my head, I, I don't remember if James uses the same Greek word or not. Okay. Um, he probably does, but again, the context is different. Yeah. And I, I, we also have to remember that we're so, for hundreds of years, influenced by the Protestant Revolution, Reformation, 
that Paul didn't have good works versus belief anywhere on his radar screen. That wasn't, yeah, you know, we just, yeah, yeah. that's the baggage that we yeah, carry we with sort us of think, into oh, this letter. Paul's doing an apologetic against a sort of sola fide right. soteriology, but yeah. he's not, because nobody's saying to him, nobody's hey, saying we have anything a sola like fide that. soteriology, we no. nailed it on this door. Yeah, I think he'd be rolling over in his grave thinking that that's how people are using his words. Mm. Yeah. And then James is like, what? what are you talking about? Like, just do, your faith should be active in your life. Yeah, like, that's, yeah. not de- that's not up for debate, really. Right. Yeah. So again, we just carry baggage that makes us associate certain words in really specific ways that yeah. we're, they were never intended to do. Mm. Because again, all this is about justification. And so then we read Romans, if you will, yeah. apologetically, sort of contra-reformation. Yeah, absolutely even right. sort of without intending to. Which is to miss Paul. There's, have you heard, have either of you heard, there was a school in academic so it's kind of inside baseball stuff um, called the new perspective on Paul. Anyone heard that term no. before? The new, if you were in kind of the biblical studies world, it was it was a huge revolution. N.T. Wright is a fruit of that. You guys know who N.T. Wright is? Yeah, he's a Paul Paul guy. He's a Paul guy. Yeah. <laughs> he's, a Paul, he's one of my favorite theologians. He's an Anglican bishop up in up in England. I'm glad you but, said he's one of my favorite bishops because I was basically just trying to figure out, okay, are these good guys or bad guys? So these are yeah. he's, he's an Anglican, but he's, so he's not of my faith tradition, but I, I love him. Okay. But the new perspective on Paul, it kind of came out of the 1970s with a guy named James Dunn, some other folks, basically saying, we need to actually rethink this and set Paul free from the shackles of the Protestant Reformation. Resource of Paul. Yeah, it was. Mm-hmm. And these were Protestant guys. Like this yeah. isn't a, ca- yeah. a Catholic Protestant thing. But I bet Ratzinger was into that. I'm sure he was, yeah. but it was saying, hey, we need to take off all of this baggage and just read Paul as Paul. For and sure. what was he saying? So mm-hmm. the school of thought that I'm even coming from, this is not like, oh, Catholics think this, Protestants think this. I'm learning from some of the best Protestants in the biblical world who are saying, no, that's never what Paul meant. Mm-hmm. This yeah, isn't yeah. good works versus um, versus believing. Because again, and the context is everything, because that's not what the community is dealing with. And so Paul's pastoral letter to a community struggling, they're not struggling saying, should we do good works or should we just believe? That, right. That's not even on the radar. Right. So it's about, again, justification. I want to keep drilling that justification. word. So to be justified yeah. means to be, and you guys know this, it's the process of adoption into God's covenant family. It's the process through which we are members of the family of God. So in the Old Testament, people were justified through circumcision. Circumcision. In the New Covenant, people are justified through baptism. baptism. But you know what? If you sort of think about that in the Latin, it's like to be justitiad, which is to be put under the law. Yeah. Because and it's not a... And not law in a bad way, but, but to, no become sub, to become a sub, to be sort of justitiate is to become sort of a subject of the law. Yes. Yeah. But mm-hmm. again, what Paul's talking about is not law versus no law. Right, right, right. It's old law versus a new law. Yeah. Uh-huh. Like an old Deuteronomic law that was for a particular period in time to yeah. a new universal law that God is calling us a- into. And that sense of, sorry, I don't mean to yeah, be go for a it. canon lawyer here, but that sense of <laughs> being justitiate also means to acquire certain rights to acquire a legal identity, right? Absolutely so it's not just to be right. put under the law, it's to acquire a legal identity with rights and obligations. Because Rome talked about this. It yeah. uses the word sozo, salvation, but to be saved means to be under the protection with all the rights and benefits of the Roman Empire. And in our baptism, we acquire certain rights sort of as yeah. children, adopted children of the Father right. and these things. And, That's right. Yeah. Totally side note, but I think this is cool. Um, do you guys know anything about the process of legal adoption in the Roman world? No. So this is why yeah, like, you had to walk around the child three times and throw no, salt. Stop it. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> this is nuts. I adopt because you. Paul uses the adoption terminology all over the place. I declare adoption. <laughs> stop it. Because Paul talks about adoption all over the place with, with regard to this. Mm-hmm. Um, 
in the Roman world, again, as I understand, I'm not an expert on this, but I've heard this. As I understand it in the Roman legal world to adopt someone, because a lot of times you would adopt an adult. There were a lot of wealthy landowners who hated their own children, didn't want them to be their heirs. Oh, to make them an heir. Yeah. So you'd adopt someone to make them an heir. It was just, it was a common thing. But not surprising. (laughs) Yeah. No, it's wild, but not surprising. But what you would do is you would go before a magistrate, a legal authority, and the magistrate would first issue a death certificate to the person being adopted oh, yeah. with their old name and their old identity, and they would die to that person. And then immediately after, they would be issued a new birth certificate with their new family name because they had essentially been born again into a new family wow. identity. Yeah, that's cool. Which is wild yes. if you think of what Paul's framework for yes. what he's saying is. So I thought that was kind of cool. Yeah, that I think we talked about that cool. last time. Maybe we did. But I'm glad Maybe we, we talked about it again. So this is this is the situation, right? So again, just kind of free context. This is why these words matter, and we got to let Paul speak for Paul. Um, so uh, to recap kind of the overall movement of the letter. So we started with the, the so what, and again, those practical matters. And then last week, we kind of went back to the beginning and the, the movement of the letter. So chapters one, two, and three, the whole theme in those chapters is, all have sinned. That's kind of Paul's takeaway, yeah. right? And by all, he means who? Both Jews Both and Gentiles. Both Jews and Gentiles. Yeah. Both you guys who are thinking that you're better than the other, you're all horrendous sinners. So Paul, you know, I don't think Paul is trying to get into the nitty gritty theological statement of, of individual sin. I think he's just saying that the stain of original sin is universal. Mm-hmm. We're all stuck with this, this concupiscence. Remember, he also talked about God's wrath, which we talked about a little bit. And Paul has a very interesting definition of wrath, right? God letting you do what you want when he sort of says, okay, go for it. But he also says if God's wrath is coming, Jew and Gentile are both subject to it. I like thinking about the Mariological implications of Paul having a specific community in mind when he says all have sinned. Because people who don't, like the Blessed Mother, um, will say like, well, St. Paul says all have sinned, and therefore, but, um, and, you know, Scripture is inspired, but... um, Paul's actual helps that, contextual meaning is you, all of you groups. And it's still true. There yes. is no error it's there. It's still like, true it's and still there's no error there. So he's yeah. not, Paul's not discussing sort of a Mariological... Again, that's not on yeah. his radar. Right. That's not what he's saying. Yeah. Again, if you make the letter of the Romans, as so many people do, into just a theology textbook, yeah. then it's really problematic. Yeah. And you come out and you're like, well, that doesn't quite happen. You have right? to be like, well, I guess he didn't make a mental reservation regarding the blessed man. But or he didn't. More he commonly, just talking to these people. Or more commonly, if you're a Catholic, you just ignore it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And you're like, well, that's a Protestant book. We don't really talk about that. Nobody, <laughs> nobody says that, but that's, yeah. in a lot of ways, that's the experience. So anyway, at least that was my experience. Sorry. <laughs> Okay, so the turn in everything comes in chapter 3, verse 21. And in chapter 3, 21, he has his but, or his however. But now, so everybody's sinned, wrath of God, universal, you guys are all, you guys all stink. He but rips now them all the down. righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Hold on, to pause. Now we get some terms that we should be familiar with. What is the righteousness of God? His truthfulness. His, his truthfulness, right. His faithfulness his to faithfulness, what he said he yeah. would do. Because again, the question is, has God left certain of us behind? Are right. we second class in God's mind? No. He says, no. In, what was it? Because the, righteousness, the, the righteousness of God has been revealed or manifested apart from Deuteronomy. Yeah. Right? Which Of which the law par excellence is... is um, Circumcision, of course. Although the law, the Deuteronomic Code, and the prophets bear witness to it. Yeah, very good. So this is important because... I just read that out loud and you said, yeah, very good. I've never felt more patronized (laughs) in my life. (laughs) 
Yes. Well, I didn't ask you to read it out yes. loud. I just wanted it. It's very good. But it's very good because, again, this is kind of the, the stakes of things. One of the things that Paul's going to do in the section that we're looking at today, he's got to walk a tightrope here in a certain sense, if you think about it. And this is, again, not a tightrope that we think about enough. He's got to write, walk a tightrope between, look, the old law, the law of Deuteronomy, is not binding any longer because it was meant for Israel in a particular moment. You're not bound by it. You're not bound by circumcision. You're not bound by kosher food laws. All these things we've talked about. So he's got to say that while simultaneously upholding the goodness of a law that we're not called to follow anymore. Yeah. And Paul would say that to all, like I was thinking, I wonder what Paul would think about that for Jews who aren't Christians. But I don't think Paul would be making that sort of ontological switch of like, oh, these Jews are Christians and these aren't. He would just, if a Jew was like, am I bound to lie? He'd say, no, because of the good news of Jesus Christ. Yes. Like, yeah, okay. Yeah, there's not like a two covenant system. Right, exactly. Like some are bound to these. And that comes up. He's going to, in chapter four, and we're not going to have time to go too, too deeply in depth, but he does talk about the person of Abraham. That's actually where we're going next. And he's going to, and it's either here in Galatians, it's more clear in Galatians. He talks about Isaac and Ishmael. Remember the two sons yep. of Abraham, and he basically is trying to obliterate this idea that there's two different groups of rules for the different Christians, right? There's not two sons. There's not two kind of identities of what it means to be followers of Jesus. There's the Jewish way of doing it, and there's the Gentile way of doing it. Mm. He's like, no, there's one son of promise, and that's what you guys are incorporated into. Cool. So you're, you're absolutely, that's where your mind is going where Paul's mind is going, which is kind of cool. So he goes, we read on uh, the righteousness of God or the faithfulness of God yep. um, through... Actually, what does your Bible say there? Verse 22. Through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. So what, what the Greek actually says, I think I, I, what I would translate it as the righteousness of God through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ rather than faith in Jesus Christ. It's the faithfulness of Jesus Christ that actually does this, okay. which is a, it's a small nuance. But Seems I think it's really kind of cool. different, though, doesn't it's, it? <laughs> it is. Again, woe to me who are criticizing Bible translators, but that's how I would translate it. So the faithfulness of Jesus Christ for all who believe. Notice that word that all That Jesus again. does what he says he's going to do for all. Who for who? Who is the all? All of you, um, all all of you Roman Christians. Yeah, the Jews and Gentiles. Again, yeah. he's speaking to them. Um, for there is no distinction since all, again, have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. They are justified, meaning what? Saved or Incorporated into the community. Yeah, brought into the family, right? By his grace as a gift through the redemption, which is in Christ Jesus. Okay, a couple things here. Um, brought in through his grace, which is a gift. In other words, not through bloodline, not just through, you know, who your parents are. but Or this associative membership. Or this yeah. associative membership, absolutely. Uh, and again, this is a, a setup for everything else. But I want to say a word about that word redeemed. Uh, what does he say? Yeah, the redemption, which is in Christ Jesus. The, when we hear the word redemption, we all think of a theological thing, I think, right? Jesus has redeemed us. It is redemption. But before redemption was a theological term, it was an economic term. Like right? redeem a coupon? Yeah, you could redeem a coupon. That's not, <laughs> I've saved this coupon. No, it's that I've used, I've used this coupon to purchase something out of a store or get tires for my car or something, right? right. So, um, yeah, it's an economic term before it's a theological one, but in Paul's world, it also had a very specific cultural uh, meaning, which was literally to purchase a slave out of slavery, mm. to set them free. You'd You're redeeming them. So do you guys know, um, I think he's a venerable, not a servant of God, Pierre Toussaint? Do you guys know yes. him? Yes. He's my son's confirmation yeah. saint, who, and his, he's awesome. Yeah, he's Haitian? He was Haitian. He was a Haitian slave. 
Um, his family moved to New York City. The family who owned him moved to New York City. It's like 1800s or something like that. Height of the slave, you know, uh, lived this horrific circumstances. His fam, the family who owned him, fell into some dire straits and really big hardships. So he actually took on a job, became a hairdresser and a very successful one. Saved financially the family who owned him. Basically paid enough money to not be a slave anymore. So redeemed himself and then started going around and redeeming other people out of slavery wow. and creating yeah. these he found his wife that way he wow. created orphanages and like cared for people but he that's bought incredible. that's redemption that's yeah. what it means to redeem he's mm-hmm. the only lay person who's actually buried underneath St. Patrick's Cathedral in New York City wow. because he paid for most of it which is wild I love this story again this is my son's confirmation yeah. saint but so if you're thinking of that and if you're thinking of Paul who is schooled as a Pharisee, right? Raised as a Jew from the tribe of Benjamin, as he says. And he thinks of what Jesus has done for us. And the first thing that comes to mind is redemption. That is to buy someone out of slavery. What Old Testament story do you think he's got in the back of his head? Pope Uh, St. Moses the Great. Yeah. Which is the story of the... Exodus. Exodus, right? Mm. And I just point that out. See, you guys are getting much better with my questions. And I I feel... The questions are getting easier. I don't think they Scott's are. Scott's like, I He's adjusting for I disagree. Ten Commandments. <laughs> I don't think that's true. I don't think that's true. Anyway, um, the point of this is that in this section of the letter that we're going to go into now, Exodus language is everywhere. Cool. And Exodus will be the framework for Paul understands this. So he's going to compare the spirit, uh, Holy Spirit leading Christians to the pillar of cloud that led Israel out of Egypt. He's going to compare baptism to the crossing of the Red Sea, right? We have to have ears to see this. So is he's he gonna specifically speak- speaking then? Is is he specifically speaking to the Jewish community here in a particular way? I don't think like so. Like he's not talking about, a po- you know, he's not talking about Hera or Aphrodite or something like that. So is he specifically sort of talking to... Yeah, because would the Gentiles even be as aware as the Jewish community? Ah, of- this is very good. So I think there's two things operative here. Number one, I think we underestimate, we severely underestimate their biblical literacy, their biblical literacy and catechesis yeah. and the process of becoming a Christian. Yeah, yeah. They took very seriously that if you're going to be justified into this family, you're going to know your family yeah. story and the history. So I think catechesis was at a far higher level. Yeah. So I think in that sense, empirically, they knew the story. Yeah. But the other thing that Paul is going to hit on very hard, and this we have to have the years to hear it, He's going to talk about, even for the Gentiles, this is our story. Mm. This is your answer. He's going to talk about- You share this heritage. Yes. Abraham is your father in faith, not like symbolically or just sort of figuratively. No, I know you don't have blood lineage to Abraham, but he is your father nonetheless. Well, I have adopted children and biological children. It would be super weird if I was telling a story and I was like- Yes. Your kids, your grandfather, not your grandfather, yes, but your exactly grandfather, right. it would be totally inappropriate. And yeah. you're probably going to go out of your way as I am, because I have children from adoption, to over, not overemphasize, but I'm going to drill home like this is your you story. These are your grandparents. You this is yeah. your history. Yeah. So he does that very much. So I think they would have known it, but I also think he wants to drill in the fact that this is your narrative now, yeah. regardless of where you've come from, right? Um, okay. Uh, last thing about that, he's going to talk about sin as a slave master, Again and again. And so in thinking about sin as a slave master, he's comparing it to whom? Egypt. Specifically Pharaoh, Pharaoh, right? The wicked oppressor of the Israelites. And he's really going to 
um, dig into that point. So in chapter four, again, I'm just going to fly through this real quick. He brings up the subject of Abraham. And again, Abraham is really important because in a sense, he is the the cause or the figure that's dividing the Jews and Gentiles in Rome. Yeah. Right? And so the Jews maybe are appealing to him saying, we're the true sons and daughters yeah, yeah, of yeah. Israel, like the adopted child or the biological child who's like, well, I'm the real son. Like yeah. you guys are part of the family. Cool. But we're the real one. So when, again, in an effect to level the playing field, Paul says it's not those who are physically descended from Abraham who are the chosen people, but it's those who have faith. And again, I think for Paul, whenever he talks about faith in the back of his mind is baptism. You are the chosen ones of Israel, right? Why? I'm breezing over a little bit, but he's going to lean on this understanding. Again, I think from well catechized Jews and Gentiles that the covenant that God swore with Abraham, right? When he made promises about Abraham being a blessing, all of that happened before what? Because this is going to be Abraham's circumcision. Way before Abraham's circumcision. Oh. Which sounds like kind of a side note. Like, that's weird. But for Paul, that's a huge deal. If Abraham is the figure in your tradition that's causing you to split between ethnic lines, yeah. guess what? Abraham was called into relationship with God long before circumcision. Yeah. So if you're using that to justify your relationship with Abraham, you've missed the story. Mm -hmm. yeah. And when he promised that all nations, in other words, all Gentiles would be blessed through Abraham's descendants... That's you guys. And it was all before circumcision. So again, he's going to keep repeating this idea of all. He's the father of all who have faith, right? Um, and again, he wants you thinking in terms of the story of Abraham as the father of all who have faith, because he's going to talk about how Abraham prefigures the lives of all who have faith. In other words, like father, like son, right? So if you and I are adopted into God's family through faith, we should see in our lives, Paul says, the playing out of Abraham's story, right? And principally, I think what he has in mind is the virtue of hope, which Paul's going to lean hard on, right? Abraham hoped against hope. Remember, his, his body was old. He was decrepit. He was basically a corpse, Paul says. But he believed God, and it says it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Do you remember that line? He's quoting from... Uh, I think it's Genesis 15 or something, but he uses it in chapter four of Romans. He says, Abraham believed God, belief, right? And that belief was reckoned to him as righteousness. What does righteousness mean? God's truthfulness. God's truthfulness. So yeah. he believes that God was true. And so because he believed in the truthfulness of God, he is, here's another theological term, made righteous. So we, justification makes us righteous before God. Yeah. Righteousness implies right relationship. We're in right relationship with our father, right? Mm -hmm. And it was Abraham's belief in God. Now, again, remember for Paul, Abraham's belief is not like rotely believing like, oh, I guess it's going to be, you know, I, I believe Abraham does something. He keeps moving in the direction of Canaan. Like his life looks like it. Again, Paul, I think it would be abhorrent for Paul to think like just doing things versus believing things. He's like, Abraham believed and look at how he lived. Right. So he's going to use this. And again, the rest of us who have faith, we are called to be the fruit of that. We are Abraham's descendants and we're called therefore to be the blessing to the world. Um, and as Christ gives us this charge, we ought to have a sense of our own incapacity. So again, he's not quite done with tearing us down. He says, I've torn you down. You should see sin. You should see what God's wrath looks like. And you should have the proper humility of a sinner who has been adopted into the family of God to recognize that, right? Um, I was reflecting this morning on something, uh, Father Raniero Cantalamesa. Um, the, the papal preacher for a long time, he talked about if you've never shed tears for your own sin, we should ask the Holy Spirit for that gift mm -hmm. to see your own frailty. And again, that's a nice, pious thing to say. But if you're dealing with a community who's divided over their pride about how great they are, then this is good pastoral advice, I think.
So now I want to jump into chapter five. And in chapter five, we enter into what I think is the theological, the literary, but also the theological heart of Romans. Five through eight is kind of one unified whole. So throughout the letter, it's actually really beautiful. Throughout the letter, because Paul, I think, knows he's writing a really long letter, and presumably the congregation is literally sitting through it, listening to it, right? He knows he's writing a long letter. So he'll summarize his ideas before kind of moving on to the next section because he knows it's long. So he wants to keep you with him. So he says, chapter five, verse one, therefore, and therefore kind of tells you he's linking something. Again, I know I keep saying the same thing, but this is the letter that people cherry pick probably more than any other letter. And I just want us to see that there is a unified whole. He's got one train of thought throughout the whole thing. So the, and the therefore is a clue to that, right? You just said something and now you're, making a point. So therefore, because of all this Abraham stuff, because we're all sinners, because we all need Jesus Christ, therefore, since we are justified, what does that mean? We are included in the family of God. Through faith or by faith, which Paul presumes means baptism, baptism, right? Just to make terms clear. We therefore have shalom, peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And through him, it says, we have obtained access to this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in our hope of sharing in the glory of God. Okay, lots to say here. So um, he uses this term. So what we have through Jesus Christ is shalom with God, shalom with God. Now I want to talk about the idea of shalom because that I think it is the controlling idea for the next number of chapters. Mm. He's not going to say it again, but our understanding of it actually matters. So this shalom that we have with God is what he says gives us access. Do you see that in verse two? That word for access is a technical term that often implies access to the temple in Jerusalem. So it's what people, there's a lot of little keywords in this. So most people, remember in the, almost everybody in the Old Testament world, in Jesus's world, they couldn't just go into the temple. The temple was where the presence of God was, the Shekinah. And the Shekinah was understood as what? Uh, that's, that's an unfair question. The they, presence of God. Yeah, but they called it the glory of God. Yeah. And that matters because he mentions that, right? We rejoice in our hope of sharing the doxa, the glory of God, which is what people only have access in the Old Testament through the temple. If you're a priest or if you're a high priest right. and you get access to this thing. So what he's saying is unbelievably. In our Advent season, we talked so much about yeah, Zachariah, Zachariah yeah. trembling with right. profound fear to behold the yeah. Shekinah. But he couldn't see, he wasn't even allowed, right? He got close to it, right? but he wasn't even came close. So what he's saying is, what should shock you is that you and I have so much greater access than Zechariah or any high priest ever had, mm-hmm. if you actually have eyes to see it. Mm-hmm. And what he's trying to show both Jew and Gentile, but perhaps the Jews in this case, is look at how much deeper he has now drawn you into this. And how can you fall back on this temporary law, these temporary state of affairs, when he has called you deep into the heart of the temple, why would you want to stay in the outer courts? Yeah. Which is a certain sense what Deuteronomy does yeah. in a good way, in a way God designed again, make no mistake yeah. here. So that makes sense. But, but there's all these little key words that he's peppering in yeah. that you'll catch if you kind of understand the world, right? Um, shalom, just a, a word about shalom that I think is the controlling um, paradigm for this section. JD, you've probably heard me talk about this. 
Um, it's, it's, uh, I wrote a book on this a long time ago about Paul, this, this section of Romans, its relationship to this, um, Camp Voitiwa, an apostle that my wife and I run is actually shaped around this idea. But I think what Paul's doing here is a concept called the four harmonies. So the four shaloms is actually what I originally called it in the beginning, right? Bereshith. If you go back to the whole beginning of the biblical story in the beginning, when God creates everything that is the whole story zeroes in on the creation of humanity. And the church is clear about this. Saint, uh, Saint uh, Thomas Aquinas talks about this. The Catechism talks about this. That when human beings were created, we were created to we were created out of r- relationship because God is relationship, right? God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So we were made out of relationship to be in relationship, right? That's a simple paradigm. Yeah. And we were created according to the church to be and, and Genesis to be in four relationships, right? Sometimes the church calls this original holiness and original justice. Mm-hmm. So in other words, relationship number one, we're created to be in relationship with God. Yes. Right? Um, we're made to, to know him, to love him, to serve him, to recognize him, to walk with him in the garden in the cool of the day. It's good. We're meant to be in relationship with God called original holiness, right? And so because we're called to be in a relationship with God, number one, we're called to be in a relationship with ourselves, right? We're meant to be holy. We're not yep. meant to be slaves to our sin. We're meant to look in the mirror and, and like what's looking back because we understand that we are image and likeness bearers of God, right? Yep. So we're meant to be in a relationship with ourselves. We're meant to be in a relationship with the people around us, right? Yes. Adam and Eve were created in a marital relationship right? They're meant to be self-gift to each other. And to be in relationship with creation. And number four, to be in relationship with creation, right? Adam is called to name... Laudato frequency, baby. Laudato frequency. But Adam is called to name the animals in Genesis, what, two, which is every ancient civilization sees naming as relational, right? He has a relationship with it. So everything is good. This is the state of the... This is Edenic, right? As we say, the Garden of Eden. But what is the story of sin? The story of sin is the breaking the relationship with God. God said, I love you. I want you to be in relationship with me. I just want you to trust me on this one thing. Human beings, for whatever reason, fear, pride, some mixture, we didn't trust God, right? So relationship number one with God is broken through the sin of Adam. Again, this is what Paul is assuming we're thinking about. Relationship number one is broken through the sin of Adam and what happens immediately after. Adam and Eve recognize their nakedness. So in other words, now my internal relationship with myself is broken. Mm-hmm. And there's something about myself that I feel shame about, right? Mm-hmm. The ancients actually talk about the moment that Adam and Eve realize their nakedness, it says they're stripped of God's garments of glory mm-hmm. that are not something, you know, you buy at Target, but like they're, they're, they're clothed in God's relationship and that is stripped from them. It's by the way, why when we baptize a person, we give them a white garment, which represents a restoration of what Adam and Eve lost in the yeah. garden. But internally we're broken. That's the bottom line. Because we break trust with God, Internally, relationship number two, were broken. Relationship with others. Remember, Adam and Eve start to blame each other. They don't trust the gaze of the other, as John Paul II talks about. Um, yeah, there's distrust. There's all sorts of things interpersonally. And then their relationship with creation is broken. Remember, Adam's consequence, the punishment, is that he'll have to toil and sweat with thistle and blood and everything else over creation. Mm. So there's a breaking apart of all these things, right? Our relationship with God is broken. Our relationship with ourselves is broken. Our relationship with the people around us is broken. Our relationship to all of creation is broken, right? But, which, which sounds like the world we live in, right? It sounds like the broken state of affairs. But what Paul is going to show is, and this is his thesis statement in chapter five, verse one, since we are justified through faith, we have shalom again with God through Jesus Christ. So in other words, through Jesus Christ, everybody, our relationship, number one, original holiness with God has been restored, right? Which we take for granted, but that's going to be the whole point of chapter five and most of chapter six, that relationship with God, number one, has been restored, 
in chapter seven, he's going to go on to talk about things like, why do I do the things that I do not want to do? Oh, sinful Mm -hmm. man, right? And he's going to say, it's almost rhetorical because he's going to say, because of Jesus Christ, you don't have to do the things that you don't want to do. You're not a slave to sin because of Jesus Christ reestablishing the relationship with God. So relationship number two has now been healed. Um, The whole purpose of the letter is strife between Jew and Gentile Christian. They cannot figure out how to get along. And what his argument is, is through shalom given to us in Jesus Christ, relationship number three, human beings with other human beings, has been restored, has been fixed. And then the capstone, this is what my doctoral dissertation was about, is that if all of that is true, then Paul closes out this whole section of the letter by saying in chapter eight, even all of creation is groaning out in travail, longing for the restoration of the sons of men. It's a kind Longing of ecological midrash, if you will. <laughs> yeah, yes, yes, it is. Um, but again, the reason I kind of bring up this whole paradigm is that Romans chapter 5 through 8, I think, is framed around the whole story of Genesis 1 through 3. Hmm. And I, I, again, I, whether Paul's conscious of it or not, I don't think Paul's thinking in terms of four harmonies, but the church certainly is. Yeah. And if the church is thinking that way, it is a paradigm that is borne out explicitly in Romans 5 through 8. Yeah. That he's kind of making this case piece by piece. I, I do make an argument. You're making fun of the title of my uh, I was, a book I that was I wrote. referencing. But that's what a midrash is. A midrash yeah. is when a rabbi will take an old piece of text, an ancient text, and make it relevant for today. And I think that's what Paul's doing here. He's taking Genesis 3 and bringing it into the light of Jesus Christ as a midrash for his people who are struggling and suffering with all this different stuff. Does that make sense? That makes sense. So that's the big picture. I so guess. then the peace, uh, saying that we have peace with God now yes. through Jesus. Yes. Is that also him trying to say we no longer need the old law because that was a way for us to work on that relationship or is that not connected at all? No, I think I, that's a good question. I, I'm not going to say it's not connected because yeah. that's not fair. Um, the old law, though, one of the, I mean, why, why did God have to institute the Deuteronomic law? When, why does law come about? Why do parents have to put more rules on their kids when they misbehave? Yeah. Right. If I mean, law is good. Law is fundamentally good. But we tend to have more and more laws, the worse and worse we get, the more things need to be corrected. Right. So circumcision, for Pete's sake, only comes as a result of Abraham's sin with uh, Hagar and having a child out of wedlock, having a, a Ishmael. That's when oh. circumcision shows up. Mm-hmm. It's not like God just decides, hey, this is going to be, be a, great a marker. marker for the covenant. Yeah. No, it's not like a, a bright idea. It's say yeah. you've just committed profound sexual sin because you didn't trust me with your offspring. Yeah. So the consequence that you're going to have to carry for the rest of your life and everybody else after is going to be so you never forget that. Mm-hmm. So with regard to the Deuteronomic law, with the, the question you asked, with regard to the Deuteronomic law, it shows, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think you're, pro- you're not wrong. I'm not prepared to say that that's wrong, but it shows up primarily to insulate Israel from its Gentile neighbors. And again, this is why this is such a difficult question for people to wrap their heads around in the time, because Deuteronomy is there so that we don't become infected with all of the sins of the Gentiles. Right. But again, that's a temporary reality because God called Israel to be the light to the world. They failed at it. And every time they went out to the world, they became like the world. So God said, okay, I'm going to sequester. I'm going to quarantine you. I'm going to ground you in a certain sense. And now the time has come for Israel to finally be what they were supposed to be. So therefore Deuteronomy is lifted as a temporary restriction to keep them from the Gentiles. And now they're called to go out to the Gentiles. But you can imagine after thousands of years of that, like there's a little unease because we're like, we were told not to do that. So, um, 
Yeah, I mean, fundamentally, what the what the Mosaic Law is doing is insulating Israel from everyone around them. That's mm. its function. Oh, okay. It's not so much about their well, but yeah. it is. It, it is. It yeah, is I though. It's all of these things. Yeah. Okay. Um, okay. So where are we? Verse uh, two. So through him, we've obtained access to this grace in which we stand. We rejoice in the hope of sharing the glory, the doxa of God. And more than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. Endurance produces character. Character produces hope. And hope does not disappoint us because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. In a certain sense, that's a summary of everything he just said, mm-hmm. right? The suffering of sin, the suffering of the wrath of God, the being on the outside the working through all these things, the having been cast out of this, all these things are working together for hope ultimately. And who embodies hope? The person of Abraham embodies hope. So he's he's really kind of wrapped up in, in kind of neat ways um, what he's just been talking about, which is kind of cool. And he's giving reason to see suffering in, in a different way. Um, jump down with me to verse 18. So he goes on, he's beginning to talk about Jesus. And again, I think what he's digging into is this reality of Jesus as the new Adam, right? So reconciling that first relationship that was broken through the sin of Adam. So when Adam disobeyed God, notice, by the way, Paul blames Adam pretty much exclusively, right? Eve is the one who first ate the fruit, but he leans all this on Adam. Um, And we can come back to that later. But Paul places the fall of man on Adam. He rebelled against God. Everything else fell apart. I think a big part of why it's Adam's fault, even though Eve ate the fruit first, is that Adam doesn't protect the garden. He didn't protect the sanctuary with which, you know, we have access to the presence of God, which is, again, this whole kind of paradigm he's in. But anyway, so who is the first man? Adam. Adam, who is the second man, the new Adam, the second Adam? Jesus Christ. Jesus, right? So he's going he's gonna to use this. So um, verse 19, for by as one man's disobedience, many were made sinners, um, namely you guys who I talked about in chapters one through three, the whole all deal. So now by one man's obedience, many will be made righteous. In other words, put into right, because of God's promises, put into right relationship with him, right? Yeah. Restored to covenant unity. It's the yeah. remedy for sin. So he says, verse 20, and this is where we kind of get to that question that we asked earlier. Law came in. So again, what is law? Deuteronomy we're talking about. But even that, we got to be a little careful because you can't limit it to Deuteronomy because what is the law par excellence? The Ten Commandments. Ah, Yes, that's true. So sorry. You actually taught us that. I did teach you that. Yeah, sorry. In regard to the fight between Jew and Gentile Christian, what is the line of demarcation in the law between one group and another group? Kosher keeping? No, the circumcision. Oh. Oh. Yeah, sorry. It's the, the, the law above all the other laws that gets you into all the laws, the entrance, the justification law. You're used to teeing or however we talked about that. Yeah, yeah it's yeah, circumcision. Yeah. And the only reason I, I, I'm coming back to that, notice that circumcision is not a Deuteronomic law. It comes in Genesis. So oh, okay. that's one of the places where you're like, well, wait, that's not Deuteronomy, though. That comes way earlier. But Paul's point is going to be, but the principle of it remains. But doesn't Deuteronomy and, kind of codify yeah, it, the... it does. Deuteronomy codifies yeah. it. Yeah, that's true. But again, he also wants you to see that the whole reason circumcision came about is as a consequence for this sin. What does this mean about law came in to increase ah, the trespass? Yeah, good. That, that's... Okay, let, let's finish that verse. Law came in to increase the trespass. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Okay, so law came in to increase the trespass. In other words, and we've seen this in some ways over some of the, well, we saw it a little bit in the Psalms podcast, I think. Basically, the more God defines a way of life for Israel, the more laws they have to break, right? So so we all have kids. But it almost sounds like law came in to increase the trespass. It almost sounds like God made a lot of rules so that you could 
sin against them. Yes, that's, that's what it sounds like. And Paul knows you're going to say that. Not, that's a cruel task. He man. knows you're going to say that. But, but yeah. at the same time, think of how, um, think of how parenting works, right? Every, t- you know, if you say to your kids, like, hey, I just made these cookies for the party later on. Don't touch the cookies. All they hear is touch all they the hear cookies. is oh, there's t- cookies to touch <laughs> yeah. now. And we all do the same thing, right? Once you introduce the idea of something that we shouldn't do, and now I've got that thing that I shouldn't do. Mm-hmm. People, you know, use this as the the whole why did God the, put but, the dang tree in the heart of the garden? But the difference is, and I think it's critical. I don't create the rule in order to increase the trespass. I don't say don't eat the cookies such that my children might offend against them. But like, people like I try to I love my children enough that I try to set them up for success. So what is St. Paul talking and about? And yet, here? but yet what you're doing is introducing a law that has the likelihood of increasing the trespass. It's not your intent, and this is where it's going to go back to the heart of God. God's not trying to make us sin. That's not what Paul's saying. He's saying simply it's the fact that the more laws there were, the more laws there were to break. So two maybe is the wrong... You can say that in any society. Maybe two is the wrong preposition or whatever here. Law came in, thus was increased the trespass. But But, two sounds like God introduced laws so that you might sin against But the law is operative in increasing the trespass. It is the law... It is the fact that there is a law that you have a law to break. I just don't want the impression here to be God created rules so that you guys would break them. But this is what Paul wants you to wrestle with. This is where Paul wants you to be. He'd be like, that's sure how it seems. So you're going where Paul wants you to go, right? That the reality, the experience is, and he's going to come back to this. So we might not fully answer this question this episode, but we're going to come back because this is where Paul is going to be. Because remember... A lot of what I presume, that's what words in their mouth, a lot of what I presume the Gentile Christians are saying is like, this law that you Israelites are so big on, this law that you guys have, like none of you can keep it. The whole premise of the gospel is that Jesus keeps calling the law, the law people, the Pharisees, the lawyers, hypocrites, because they can't even follow their own law. They keep making all of these laws that are too difficult to follow. And so the whole question becomes, well, why does God give us Deuteronomy at all? He gave us all these laws that are too hard to follow. And Paul's actually going to speak to that. Does that? Yeah, so it does, yeah. you're, I, I don't want to take your being troubled away because like Paul, Paul wants is you affirming the pre, is affirming the premise. He's he kind of is, but he's doing it for a reason because he wants to frustrate you so he can come back and, and try to solve it. So okay. hang on to that. Let's see if let's see if so it gets worked out. maybe perhaps it would be like your presumption is law came in to increase the trespass. I, don't I just don't want put, scripture to be telling me words, something about God that I. I don't want to put words find. in Paul's mouth though. Okay. Because what it says is what it says, which is troubling, right? Mm-hmm. But he's also, again, speaking to the experience. The experience, the objective experience is the more laws there are given by God, the more laws we break. Is that not, is that not a true enough premise? Yeah, it is true. And God knows that. Yeah, it's not it like God, we've pulled the wool over God's eyes. So therefore, he knows that the more laws he gives us, the more we're going to sin against So what's them. the solution that Paul okay. gives us? So he says, but, but... But where sin in also, I think Paul uses a little bit of hyperbole because he wants to frustrate you. He wants to stick this in your head. So, and Jesus uses hyperbole too. So don't, this is not an undermining of scripture in any way or God's integrity. Mm. The scripture writers love to use a little bit of hyperbole because they're really trying to push something hard that needs to be pushed. So the law came in to increase the trespass. That is experientially true. But where the sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So what is Paul saying? Number one, the more laws that were given, the more sin multiplied. But that's not the end, right? Because whenever we sin, so more laws equal more sin. More sin equals 
More what? Grace. Grace. More grace. So the final outpouring of grace came through Jesus Christ. So if I tell you that more grace comes, the more you sin, the natural inclination is? Sin more. So we should sin more, right? Because the more we sin, the more grace is going to come, right? So that we might glorify God who can give us more grace, which is exactly what Paul's thinking too, or at least what he thinks you're thinking. So he says, chapter six, verse one, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may abound? Then he says, noi genoiko, which is the strongest legal terms, which you could say, I object. In other words, right? Absolutely not. Uh, what's my translation? By no means, right? It's a very strong term. So look at his logic, right? If I sin, think as, as a Catholic, if I sin and I go to confession, the grace that God gives me is utterly disproportionate to my sin, right? Yes. Okay. Just like the 40 days of rain in the time of Noah was disproportionate for the sin, right? It, there's an abundance of rain. There's an abundance of grace um, through, through uh, the sacraments, right? So why shouldn't I keep sinning? And look at his reasoning. Paul doesn't say, because if you keep sinning, you're going to fry in hell. He could have said that, and hell is real. I'm not diminishing that. But his appeal is to identity, because this is a letter about identity, right? His appeal to, is to identity, which is in chapter, uh, in chapter 6, verse 3. Do you not know? How can you, it's the end of verse 2, by no means, how can you who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, by baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead, the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So it's an appeal to identity. Paul says you can't persist in sin even though you know God's going to give more grace because it's a lie about your true personhood. So the key is this. There's two Adams, right? There's the old Adam and then there's the Christ. And what Paul is saying is in baptism, we've died to the first Adam and we're born into Christ. So um, I give a handout to my students that I'm just going to read it to you. Um, it's a little box in about chapter six, because he'll describe basically in the next chapter and a half or so, what it means to live in Adam, right? And he's basically going to say, hey, there's a lot of you in the congregation who are still living in Adam. And it's manifest in your lives. I can see it. He says, in Adam, you're slaves to sin, which leads to death. You're dead under the law. The Torah, these laws don't lead to life, right? They're not life-giving. They were temporary punishments. Indwelling of sin leads to slavery, right? But I'm calling you to be alive in Christ, right? To, to actually recognize what happened to you in your baptism, which means you're actually slaves of righteousness, ending in eternal life. He does bring eternal life into this here. And this is where, you know, a lot of the premises are about membership. How do you get into the family? But here is where he'll point toward eternal life, right? This is the telos that you're going toward. You're alive in the new law. You have sonship now. Um, it's kind of like this chapter is kind of like, you remember in malls where you'd have the map of like, you are here yeah. and it shows you like, here you are yeah. and here's Radio Shack and everything. That's kind of what he's doing in chapter six. He's like, here's where you are. Here's where you ought to be going. So um, the fundamental shortcoming, and so this goes back to your question, right? The fundamental shortcoming of the law, the, the specific, those specific laws for Paul is that the command of the law does not give you power to live the law. And this is where he's going to kind of find the shortcoming of the old covenant. And the shortcoming of the old commandments, the old law, is that it can tell you what is right and wrong, but it can't actually help you do those but things. Tom, I'm sorry. I'm really... Yeah. I, I don't know if this is making for good podcast, but Probably not. Thomas disagrees vehemently, right? Law habituates us to virtue. Law is instructive and observance of the law forms in us good habits and therefore 
orients our soul towards the thing which is justice. But that's not the experience of the Old Testament. It's, it's I'm not, finding myself uncomfortable here. Yeah, and maybe we need to... I'm not sure what we should do about it, and I don't mean to throw a wrench in the works here, but no. my honest response is, is discomfort with that. And maybe this is, maybe this is why <laughs> Thomas says that Aristotle has something to say to Christianity, but I hate to think that Scripture is insufficient, that Scripture's sort of philosophy of law is insufficient. It's just I'm accustomed to thinking that observance of human laws habituates me to this virtue, this human virtue called justice. Paul, Paul's not saying that the law is bad, though, and he's going to keep coming back and drilling this idea that the law is not yeah, bad. Yeah, but he doesn't think it's, it's not the law's fault that you're dying. But he doesn't think it does us any good either. I don't think that's true. I don't think he would say that. Well, you're saying that he doesn't think it it gives us the capacity to observe it better. The laws themselves do not assist us in doing the thing. It's like a stop sign. If I see a stop sign, there's nothing about that stop sign that compels me to stop. I ought to stop. I should know intellectually that that means to stop. And stopping every time at every stop sign of my life no, that's means true. that when I get to a four-way stop with no stop sign, that's I'm right. habituated to the virtue of safety, and I stop. Yeah, I think that's true, and I think he would he would grant that, but that's I'm different sorry, than I'm not but that's different to... than grace. It is different than grace, but that doesn't. And so then, if that's the case, there's no difference between the Old Testament law and the New Testament law of grace. If they both do the same thing, if they just habituate us the same way. He's saying, no, there's a difference, and you can see the difference in your lives because those laws didn't actually give you the, the ability to do them. And look at the evidence in the life of Israel. Yeah. And that's a problem for Paul. I, I get it. I think it's interesting. But because I just... they're hanging their hat. So many members of the community are hanging their hat on Deuteronomy and saying, no, it's only by doing these things that you'll actually be justified. And he's saying, experientially, that's not true. And they don't recognize, I mean, if I may, they don't recognize that observance of the law over a lifetime has made them better persons. Maybe the point is that this is a soteriological reflection only, and being a better person is not important. Being a better person doesn't save you, and I think that's true. But it is, it, there is a good, human goodness there. There, yeah, I, I don't think that's... I, I'm, I'm wrestling again, with this, Paul's Scott. Paul's not going to say law is bad. We need Aristotle in but here. But he does say... He does say point blank, Paul, the Torah came in because of transgression. And the more law we had, the more transgressions there were. It's not the other way around for Paul. The more laws, the more sins. And, and I, he does say that. And I appreciate that. And that is what he says. But it, yeah, I... Right? Uh, it is. I, I just... I, I'm really... I find... I okay. wish that Paul okay. held Let's... my worldview about these things. <laughs> well, well, he does, but here's the problem. So, okay. I don't think he does, and I think that's okay, because Christianity doesn't have philosophy yet. I'll tell you why I think he does to some degree. I'll tell you why he does to some degree. So, first of all, why does God do that? Why does God take all this time to maintain and hold Israel to a law that's actually not going to allow them to do what it suggests it does, which seems problematic, right? And it, he will say in chapter 7... Again, he does say in chapter 7 that the law doesn't give you the ability to live the law. He's not saying the law is bad. It's just saying it doesn't, on its own, do it. it on its, it's own, true it that the that. law does not infuse you with grace. I think we can all agree that the law does not sort of do the same thing right. as a sacrament. But what he's saying is that the opposite has happened in the law, right? Because of Adam, um, sin has actually hijacked the law. When God gave Israel the Torah, yeah, they had more laws to break. But the problem wasn't knowing the law. It was the fact that their hearts were not receptive to the laws. Because their hearts and their relationship to the law, the law couldn't change their hearts. 
Which yeah. again, maybe that's no, what you're I pushing think, back no, on. No, I, I, I guess I am, but in another sense, I think we can say as Christians that, yeah, the perfection of virtue, grace... He's not talking about laws in the abstract, though. He's talking about the laws of Deuteronomy. I, I know. And that's important, though, but because I don't think he's those not are saying the same. Bad th- laws, right? Those he are doesn't think they're bad laws either. Bad laws. He doesn't think they're bad laws either. I don't know if this is good radio. But man. they have shortcomings because they don't. They can't save you, is what he's saying. No, they're they also can't. distinct. They can't save you. I, I think that's right. and that's the point he's making. Yeah. And because and I, I'm, they can't... maybe I'm getting too deep in the weeds here, but I'd love to interface Paul. I'd love to put Paul, Luther, Aristotle, and Thomas in a room together. Oh, that would be messy. Anyway, I'm sorry, I'm not trying to hijack this, but this is, I think this is a really interesting thing to think about, and it reminds me, like the takeaway here that reminds me is Christianity does something subsequent to Paul. You you pointed out sort of trying to read Christianity, or Paul absent Luther. Yes, that's right. But it's very difficult to read Christianity absent Aristotle and Plato for for us. Now, maybe that's not true of a certain kind of Eastern Christians, and I think it would be really interesting to have a conversation with Eastern Christians about this. Because I realize I'm pulling like Aristotelian ideas into my assessment of Paul, and which I, is fine, and I think that's good. But it's also interesting to say, oh, actually, like Christianity doesn't always have those ideas. And but again, Paul's going to reiterate again and again that the law is good. Yeah, the law is in itself good. The yeah. law is not bad. The laws of because that's where he doesn't want you to go. Remember, is to think that the laws of Deuteronomy are bad laws. Right. He won't permit you to go there. But he's also saying they are distinct. They will not save you, number one. And they Which they were, I think we and, all. And they were problematic. They caused problems in the life of Israel because Israel was not able to follow them because of the corruption due to sin. And Paul didn't think... I guess the, the only place I get hung up on, and we're yeah. not going to solve this today, but the only place where I get hung up on, and the place where I think that... I think Romans points to a need for further study, which thanks be to God, that's yeah. the history of Christian theology, is... Paul didn't think that observance of the law in itself, like, di- doesn't save you, everyone agrees, but that Paul didn't think that observance of the law made it easier to observe the law. I think he thinks it made it harder. I find that fascinating. And I think he thinks he did that to make us re- recognize our need for grace, for a savior, that without Jesus Christ, the law will not save us. Which I, I think is true. And that... God allowed us to wrestle with laws that were objectively good, that we could not objectively follow because of the corruption of the human heart, to show us that we need more than laws, more than those laws. And that seems to be his premise in chapter 7, verse 13. Oh, I'm sorry, chapter 7, even look at 7. Um, what shall we say to this? That the law is sin. The law is bad. By no means. Noigonoiko. For if it had not been for the law, I shouldn't have known sin. (laughs) If I should not have known what it is to covet, I should not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. Okay. But sin, finding opportunity in the commandment, wrought in me all kinds of covetousness. Apart from the law, sin lies dead. Once I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. The very commandment which promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, finding opportunity in the commandment, deceived me, and by it killed me. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, right? So the laws are good, but actually sin hijacked the law to lead me into more sin. Yeah. So he's not making a moral statement, again, number one, against laws in the abstract, or against law in general. He's saying that sin hijacked it. Yeah. And I I can't get around that. 
But again, yeah. I don't think he's no, taking I, away from Aristotle. And I think he would probably grant, look, laws are objectively good. But he's also not writing this to be a philosophical treatise. And I think that's important. It's look what I'm doing is I'm, you're saying, hey, Paul is writing to the pastoral experience of yeah. these people in this community. And I'm like, well, no, I don't think, I think he's sort of contravening the Nicomachean ethics here. And I think that's Well, but Paul's not allowed problem, to say right? something that's untrue in the spirit of No, of no, a, but I think you know, taking it into, take your experience of the law and the way in which sin, the insidiousness of sin, yeah. you know, does this. And I think that's true. Like law, even though I affirm that observance of law habituates in us virtue, I can also say the thing that you say, you know. The... Well, I don't think Paul would counter that. I don't think he would disagree. Yeah. But yes, law, and I, but I even think I would nuance it more than that, that law has the ability to, um, what did you call it? Perpetuate in us habituate. virtue. Habituate in us virtue. It can do that. It doesn't mean it always does. It doesn't mean it always does. And I think that's And oftentimes it doesn't. I mean, I do think that's a human experience. Oftentimes law does not habituate virtue in us, even though it has the ability to, even though it can, right? I shall have you to reflect on that. <laughs> I, I, I think we both should. I, I'm saying things. <laughs> I'm saying things off the top of my head, but because it's this is a hard. It is a very yeah. thing, and I didn't expect. Maybe yeah, this I didn't is good expect to have this pushback. I'm, I honestly, I didn't. But no, it's I'm, good. I just think about John Paul II saying, "Look, ecclesiastical law, not divine law, but ecclesiastical law." Which creates, this is not. Make no mistake. No, but this I mean, is not human law, law, right? Yeah. JP2 is saying not even divine law. Yeah. I'm just talking about a human law. Human law makes the church a more just place. And by making it a more just place, it makes it a place where the presence of the Holy Spirit can be made more manifest. Yes. And where the primacy of grace, faith, and the charisms can be more concretely realized in the lives of believers. Yes. And I think that that vision of the law, like law gives us the kind of order by which God can move more concretely in our lives. So it sort of informs my thinking that um, this this perspective is at least hard for me to get my arms around, very honestly. But, but again, we're talking about two different things, because I don't think Paul's advocating for lawlessness. No, I don't that think There should be either. no societal norms or yeah, anything. No, He's no, saying no. that there's a group that think that they are covenant family members because of a law. Yeah. And I think there's Catholics that fall into that, too. I mean... <laughs> See, you call me thing. a Pelagian No, I'm not, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not. But I do want to... I do want to... Um, it's about to get real. I do want to say something about Martin Luther because I don't think Martin Luther was ignorant and just thought, oh, Paul's talking about good deeds versus belief. Yeah, I right. don't think he thought that at all. I think New Luther knew exactly what Paul was talking about. He's simply saying at the time, oh, the Catholics are like the group that Paul is criticizing, yeah. saying they are saved by their laws. Yeah. Again, I don't think Luther misunderstood this book at all. I think he just appropriated it wrongly and vilified and, you know, the, the church had done a lot of bad. There were Pelagians in the church. I mean, this has always yeah. been a thing. Right. But he's saying, look, you are treating your law as though it is the salvation. Yeah. And again, we're talking about a guy who probably was plagued down with scrupulosity yeah. and, and all sorts of neuroses and everything else. Tragically, um, who the idea of being freed from those kind of shackles, like Israel was freed from the shackles of Deuteronomy, sounded very freeing. But again, that was to misread Paul. He's not saying, therefore, throw off the shackles of all right. these things. He's saying exchange one law for another law, that there was an old law in Deuteronomy will not get you into the family of God. Yeah. It does not save you. The law of faith does, working through baptism, which has norms and laws yeah. that are meant to, to habituate things in us. Yeah. They really do. Again, Paul's, he's not just saying throw out order. No, I, I know, I know, I know. And, and, and I... <laughs> I wonder what Paul would say to Aristotle I, in the I sense just, of the neutrality of law, because I don't think Paul is saying anything actually good or bad about 
this law. He's saying that the evil one has hijacked it. I just struggle with this notion of to increase the trespasses if the end of law is to make manifest sinfulness or something like that. I think Especially what Paul is saying law, is God's part of the end of law is to make manifest our need for something more than law. Thank you. That's helpful to me. How about yeah. that? Yeah. Yeah. And that's what he is saying. Our, our, how did I say that? It was really good. <laughs> Whatever. The end, yeah, well, part of the end of law is to make manifest our need for something more than more law. than law. Again, which is different than saying throughout the law, law is bad. Yeah. No, the law actually God allowed evil to corrupt the law to show us that we need more than it could give us. Yeah, because that's his that's his thesis, is that again the laws aren't bad. He says that again and again. Did that which is good, fundamentally the law, then bring death to me? By no means, noikonoiko. It was sin working death in me through what was good, i.e. the law, in order that sin might shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. So in other words, the law is good, but God allowed sin to permeate it so that sin could be shown to be sin. That's his thesis. And now God has called you to something else. Yeah. Whew. Maybe that's, that's a good heavy. enough place to to, <laughs> to lay it down. Yeah, thank now. you. I, I'm again. I just uh, a lot. I, I think this I is I got to think about this between the next podcast. But I think this yeah. is great because I think. Um, look, I I'm feeling it right. I'm I mean, not, I'm like, <laughs> but I'm not willing in any way, shape, or form to pit Aristotle against Paul. Yeah, I'm not, me neither. That's why I want to Even understand the reconciliation better, and that's why yeah. I think like, look, it's amazing. Paul is not writing a theological treatise. He's writing to this particular community, and yet. But it's still theological. It's still theological, and it's and principally theological and philosophical, and from an apostle, and that's why we have two thousand years of yes. debating it. Is because we we it, we we come at it with our philosophical and experiential lenses, and some of these things are hard teachings, even right. not just to sort of accept, but to right. Uh, understand. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. And you can see why there's been a lot of fights. Yeah. Over this book. Mm-hmm. Amen. And what to do with it? Yeah. I might just say kind of a capstone word about chapter eight, Please do. which uh, which is just sort of the so, again sort of the so what of the section yeah. that um, it, essentially if if God has been faithful in all of these things, why do you not think He will keep being faithful to you? Yeah, it's kind of yeah. the summary yeah. statement in chapter eight, and again He brings creation into it. I actually think He rips off Roman imperial language of what the emperors would do and bring new spring times to Rome and to the earth. Yeah. He's like actually Jesus Christ did that. He yeah. puts imperial language on him. But he's like, if, if Christ has restored everything from our relationship to the law, to our spirits, to our relationships with each other, even creation itself is groaning. So if God has done all of that, what makes you think he won't show up for the Roman community? What makes you think that he has abandoned you? And he's going to then answer the, the question that that begs in chapters 9 through 11, specifically about what, the, what then of Israel? Because it seems like God has moved on from a lot of us. So what do we do with that? Okay. Yeah. So that's what we'll talk about next time. Great. Amen. Thank you, Scott. Yeah, Yeah. thanks, guys. This episode of Sunday School is a production of Pillar Media and NJD Production. Our executive producer is Kate Oliveira, a Sunday School teacher. Putting up with my uh, grappling with scripture is Dr. Scott Powell, and I'm your host, J.D. Flynn. We'll be back next week with more from the letter to the Romans.